0: Empire.
1: Called the fake news the enemy of the people, and they are. It's a serious question. I appreciate your passion. I share it. I've addressed this question, I've addressed my personal feelings. And I want you all to know that we are fighting the fake news. Listening to Just Ask the Question: Adventures in Reporting with your host Brian Karam. Hi and welcome back to Just Ask the Question. I am your host Brian Karam, and today it is again a pleasure to have with us, uh, well, one of our favorite guests, Michael Zeldin, who's uh, former he served time as a prosecutor in the federal government. CNN political analyst and uh, knows a lot about the courts and so today we're going to talk to him a little bit about the prosecution of the um, police officers in Minneapolis for uh, the killing of George Floyd. When we come right back we'll have that. Hi, and welcome back to Just Ask the Question. I'm, I am your host, Brian Karam, and with us again is Michael Zellner. Michael, I guess we'll start off, you know the drill. I'll just ask the question. Do they have a case against uh, the police officers in Minneapolis for the murder of George Floyd?
0: I think they do. It's a very hard thing to prosecute police officers for crimes committed in the course of their work as police officers. We saw in the famous... Rodney King case, where they mercilessly beat Rodney King with a baton for for nearly two minutes. Yeah. Um, they were acquitted of state assault charges because they said that Rodney King was resisting arrest and that they had the right to to do this as part of their you know normal policing activity. We saw that in other cases where police officers shoot unarmed um, black or other um, uh, victims uh, and claim that they feel threatened um, and that this was self-defense of some sort. And these are hard cases to, to, to prove. The police have a difficult job and um, the courts seem understanding of that. In this case, however, I think that the timeline and, and the video show that the police acted beyond the need uh, to restrain um, Mr. Mr. Floyd, that he was in custody, handcuffed, principally cooperative, no reasonable person could feel threatened by him in any way. And he was restrained in a, Um, position using a um, device of the knee on the neck that is dangerous and is known by the police to be dangerous for nearly nine minutes while crying out for um, help um, because he couldn't breathe and so the 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 video timeline shows I think undermines any defense of uh, I needed this to protect myself or I needed this because I had an uncooperative um, uh, arrestee. And um, given that he, he, Mr. Floyd, was calling out, saying that he can't breathe and that this is killing him, and to please not kill him, and and even one of the other officers said to the principal defendant, um, Chauvin, maybe we should roll him on his side. Maybe it's, you know, we don't need to do this anymore. And, and Chauvin said, no, I think that that's a pretty strong case um, as to the principal defendant, um, uh, Mr. Mr. Uh, Officer uh, Officer um, Derek Chauvin. As to the others, the aiding and abetting it's a little bit more complicated. Again, in, in the um, Rodney King case, um, they were all acquitted in state charges. They, and we can talk about this in a minute. They, they were then re, um, indicted under federal charges and two of them were convicted and two of them weren't, um, convicted. So yes, I think in this case, the timeline undermines the defenses that police officers tend to put forth in, in these cases.
1: And one thing that, uh, I, I spoke with a, uh, former police chief yesterday who, uh, says that you know there is racism rampant in police departments, and that we do have to get better in the disciplining of uh, police officers. It has to be more transparent and public. I don't think there's anything more public than a than a trial. But on the administrative side of it, is there something that you think that police could be doing better to publicize the? Uh, the discipline that they give officers to instill confidence in the public at large that, hey, we're not going to let bad guys get away with this. Is there something that could be done?
0: Sure. And in fact, there is something that you know could be done um, uh, soon, which is um, that there are cases now pending from multiple states across the country um, to try to um, eliminate the, um, Supreme Court rule that provides for qualified officer immunity. In, in the ordinary case, if, if you as private citizen assault another person, you can be charged with criminal assault and you could also be sued civilly for that. Remember, we saw that in, in OJ Simpson. He was charged with the crime of a murder, which he was acquitted of. And then um, he was sued civilly uh, for money damages. Doesn't bring back the life of the, the decedent, but but some level of um, satisfaction, I guess. And in the case of police officers, there's this qualified officer immunity doctrine that makes it very difficult to sue police officers and, and civilly and 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 win. Um and now there are cases that are pending which may um eliminate altogether qualified um officer immunity. Um and if they did do that then coupled with better training I think that it might impact um behavior. Because if you think about it from a, a, a a bad police officer's standpoint. And, and they're, I think, more good than bad police officers overwhelmingly. But from a bad police officer's standpoint, the likelihood of them getting convicted is is low. The possibility that they will be held financially liable uh, for their behavior is perhaps even, in, even lower. Yeah. And, and therefore, the consequence that they will be disciplined um in in the workforce is 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 minimized and so in a sense there is no governor um on their behavior and all of those things i think can be um, changed and i think that change would result in in better police
1: behavior well the the argument you would have against um making them uh, civilly liable is that what if you don't like getting arrested? You're just going to there'll be frivolous suits and that they'll be able to, you, you know, if your head gets bumped when you get put in a police car, you're going to sue. Um, how would you respond to those who think that it would allow frivolous suits to occur?
0: Well, I mean, I suppose there are frivolous lawsuits that are brought all, all the time. Neighbors suing neighbors over um, trees. Who was it that got punched in the face? Uh, Senator... Rand Paul yeah. over, over a dispute over gardening or something. You know? <laughs> so people, people behave in, in, in mystifying oh. ways. Um, and so, yeah, maybe if it was a little bit easier to prevail in a, in a civil lawsuit against a police officer, it might give you a bit of an uptick t- in, uh, in, in frivolous cases. But more importantly, I think, and, and more to the point, it will allow for the redress of uh, legitimate grievances against police officers who now are uh, largely immune um, from that. So I'll take the frivolous, the few frivolous cases um, in favor of the substantial cases that can be important for the individual uh, litigants, but also could be more fundamentally important in terms of changing police behavior
1: so in, in regards to the current case uh, the defendants in the George Floyd case um, what's the next step in the process All right. so let's let's step back and then go forward so
0: okay. on on May the 29th so this this um, this this killing took place on May the 25th you know he's uh, Floyd is first sort of apprehended. And one thing that's important always to remind people of is what it was that George Floyd was arrested for, which was, was. allegedly passing a twenty-dollar counterfeit bill at a convenience store. So there was a nine-one-one call saying, "I think there's a guy here who wants to buy something from my convenience store," and the and the and the and the bill is um, we think is counterfeit. That that police call 911 call comes in at eight o'clock, 8:08 in the evening. Police arrive at 12. By 8:13, he's handcuffed and sitting on on the ground, um, and they're trying to get him into the car, which he's trying not to do because he said he's claustrophobic. Then this guy Chauvin, Derek Chauvin, the lead officer, the training officer, shows up at 8:20. And um, uh, starts applying his knee to Floyd's neck, having pulled Floyd out of the police car, and there he puts his, neck, his foot on his neck, his knee on his neck, um, for the, nearly nine minutes. The ambulance arrives at like eight eight twenty seven, and the guy is dead at nine twenty seven. So I mean, this whole thing goes from eight oh eight to nine twenty seven, completely um, preventable. Uh, on no need for this at all. So anyway. So May 25, um, George Paul, George Floyd is is dead. May the 29th, the, the county attorney, uh, Hennepin County, which is where this takes place in Minnesota, mm-hmm. Mike Freeman, brings an uh, um, uh, in information charging him, Chauvin, with third-degree murder and second-degree manslaughter. Third-degree murder in Minneapolis, in Minnesota, is causing another's death without the intent to kill, but with a disregard for human life. They call it a depraved mind. So you didn't and what's go the into punishment the situation.
1: for that? Excuse me? And the punishment for that is
0: twenty-five years. Okay. Up up to twenty-five up years. So you didn't so he, under this third-degree murder, he didn't necessarily have to be intending to kill him. But he acted in such a reckless, depraved way that it resulted in his his death. Um, and similarly, for second-degree manslaughter, um, it doesn't require that the perpetrator engage in lethal with a lethal intent, but that the perpetrator created an unreasonable risk of serious um, harm or death. So it seemed at the at the outset that those charges pretty much. Fit uh, to a tee the behavior of of the officer that he may not have intended to kill him, but that he behaved with such a depraved mind that it resulted in 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 the loss of um, Mr. Floyd's life. When when those charges were announced, people were concerned that they didn't really reflect the true nature of the encounter, and the governor appointed. Um, Keith Ellison, the, the Minnesota Attorney General, to join the prosecution team with Mike Freeman. He didn't replace him. So Mike Freeman, right. the Hennepin County Attorney, and Ellison will do this together. They looked at the evidence more closely. Remember, the, the, the original charges were filed four days after the death, yeah, right. three days. considering the death was at 9 p.m. Um, and what they looked at it, and they looked at the evidence, and they said, um, you know what, this evidence may actually fit second-degree murder. And in second-degree murder, which is, carries 40 years in prison and a mandatory 150 months in in, in, in prison, um, and remember in Rodney King case, the judge seemed rather sympathetic to the police officers after the conviction in the federal trial, and even though they beat Rodney King mercilessly, I think the, the, the lead um, police officer got two and
1: a half years. So um, well, there was a fear here that with well, a let me backtrack just a second. You said so mandatory one hundred and fifty months. Well, that's, I think that's right. That's, that's twelve and a half years.
0: The right. mandatory and, twelve. And okay.
1: So by so, stepping it up to second degree, you increase the minimum. If he's convicted, the minimum amount of time he would have to spend in prison would increase. As, as well as, as the maximum. As well, exactly. Right. And so,
0: but you say, well, what, what are the elements of um, second degree murder? And why wasn't it charged immediately? Why didn't Mike Freeman charge second degree murder? Because Mike Freeman, remember, is one of the few people, maybe the only person, who's ever gotten a murder conviction against an on duty police officer. So, he, you know, this guy knows what he's doing and he is not afraid to charge police officers with crime. So as Ellison said, in his, um, press conference, they looked at the evidence, you know, had a little bit more time. Um, it's now May the 31st, and they come back with new charges, which is second degree murder and second degree murder requires one of two things or actually three things. One is you, you intentionally sought to kill the victim. So that's, you know, typical, what you think of as murder, you know, I, I intend to kill you, um, and that, I don't think the right. evidence doesn't support that, at least as we know it now. Right. The second, the second alternative way of proving second-degree murder is to say that the killing of the victim occurred while committing a different felony that you intended to commit, So they call it felony murder, so while intentionally committing a crime, another crime occurs, and you then get charged for essentially both of those crimes. And in this case, in this case, what they said is that he killed Mr. Floyd while intentionally committing assault in, in the third degree. So while intentionally assaulting Mr. Freeman, something he intended to do, an assault is simply infliction of substantial bodily harm on another. While intending to inflict substantial bodily harm on Mr. Floyd by this neck um, thing, um, (laughs) it resulted in the chokehold. It resulted resulted in, in death. And so, that second degree murder, intentionally committing the assault, and that intentional assault leading to death, that's second degree murder. Um, so they're gonna have to prove here the the underlying assault, right? And and then if they can prove that the underlying conduct, the the the, the knee on the neck, constituted third degree assault, that they go to the, um, and they can get to the second degree murder. So it's a bit of a gamble because, as I said, the third degree murder um, seems to be an easier path than the, than this two-step process with the second degree murder. But if, even if they fail on the second degree murder, they can still convict them of third degree. And so they they so- added they've added a, a, an additional charge. So now these these guys are charged with. The principal guy is charged with murder in the second and third degree and um, second degree manslaughter. And the other officers are charged um, with aiding and abetting. In some cases, it's by substantially participating in it. Two officers, um, one of them, Kunig, I think it's K-U-E-N-G, applied pressure to Floyd's torso. In some of the videos, you can see someone kneeling on his Torso, and the guy, Officer um, Lane, was applying pressure to Floyd's legs. So he had essentially three officers holding down a, a, a relatively speaking, cooperative um, arrestee. Um, and then this guy Thao, T-H-A-O, he's standing by between the crowd that's, that's developing and um, and Floyd. And so those guys are charged with aiding and abetting. Um,
1: and that's also true in Rodney King. And how much time and could Rodney. they see? If ten years. Ten years, if convicted. And minimum for that?
0: I don't think there was a mandatory minimum that I saw, um, but it carries um, uh, up, to, up to ten years um, in prison. So these are now, all very serious charges. Sorry?
1: These are all very serious charges these people are facing. Do you think yep. that, well, before we go to break... Do you think that this will help quell some of the, uh, the protest, or you, do you think it was done to quell some of the protests, or in accordance with existing uh, norms within the judicial system?
0: I, I, I think that there's a little of both here, Brian. I think that uh, while A.G. Um, Keith Ellison said this was not based on anything but the evidence, and I take him at, at his word, the fact that they brought second-degree murder charges did seem to tamp down some of the anger um, in, among among the, the protesters, um, but I think that the, the reality is, is that as a prosecutor, your um, principal concern is can I prove this in court? And the last thing you want to do is—I mean, some people were screaming that he should be charged with first-degree murder. Right. Well, first-degree first murder requires premeditation. That's impossible to prove in this case. So the last thing you want to do is, you know, you will um, give in to public pressure, charge first-degree charge 1st first murder, and lose the case. Right. You'd much rather convict him um, of third-degree murder um, than lose a first-degree murder case. So I think, generally speaking, prosecutors want to win, and they bring the charges as best allows them the opportunity to win. The thing that will be sort of interesting in this case is that you got two officers here I'm sure pronouncing one is is the K U E N G. Do you know how he pronounces that? No, I
1: don't. Kung, Kang, don't know.
0: So <laughs> okay. um, Kuhn and and Lane. This was their first week on the job. Ooh. They were police officers for three or four days when when this occurred, and uh, um, Chauvin, the the guy who. Who um, is charged with second-degree murder? Who had his knee on Mr. Floyd's neck? Was their supervising officer? Um, and so, even though Great at one point in the encounter, um, Lane, the guy who's there for four days, asked Chauvin, "Can we put him on his side? You know, so because because he can't breathe." Chauvin says no. And Chauvin is the you know there's a chain of command here, and Chauvin is the um, the lead. Um, training officer on the scene. So these guys, these aiding and abetting guys who are, I think, going to cooperate against Chauvin, um, they may not be as easily convictable.
1: And, yeah, especially if you're saying, hey, let the guy up. So, but as we go to break, I'll leave you with this last question. Do you think you would feel comfortable as a prosecutor prosecuting this case?
0: No question. This is a very prosecutable case I would think long and hard about whether I want to go this second degree murder of proving the third degree assault and then um, having to get to the second degree murder part of it or whether I wanted to go with just causing the um, uh, death by unintention but with a depraved mind but there's no question that this case should be prosecuted and and, it sh- and they should and this Mr. Chauvin
1: um, should be convicted. We'll have more when we come right back. And we're back, and we're talking with Michael Zeldin. And, Michael, I guess the um, to carry it a little farther, we were talking about the, uh, the uh, George Floyd case, which has led to the numbers of protests and riots across the country. Um particularly by minority communities who believe that uh, police, prosecutors, and the law don't really care much about them. And that's the bigger issue as we go to it. Now, you've worked as a prosecutor. What have you seen? Do you think there's, um, as I said, I spoke to a police chief yesterday. He says there is racism in police departments. We do have to make changes. What changes do we have to make, do you think? Well, we talked in the first segment
0: about Getting rid of the qualified officer immunity so that the police officers feel some realistic um, threat to their well being if they behave in this way. So, you have to incentivize people to behave properly. So, if they can't be convicted and they can't be sued and they're not going to get fired, there, there's no in- in- incentive. You know, it's sort of like you're driving down the highway and it says, Speed limit 55, radar broken,
1: you know? <laughs> You're right. But so, systemically, what about from the prosecutorial side of uh, of it? Is there something else that can be done there? I mean, when we talk with the police chief, he was saying, look, we need better training for police. We need to weed out the people that are bad. We need to encourage. We need to go into communities that don't like us and build a rapport with them. I, I get all of that. But once it comes down to the prosecution of cases, there are those who believe that the prosecutors are in bed with the police and that are, and they're willing to turn the other cheek and look the other way when police do something wrong.
0: Well, I'm sure there is some of that at the state level. You know, at the federal level, I don't, I, don't, I hadn't seen that very much. When I was a Public oh, the defender
1: this current administration notwithstanding I hope well, I want to talk about
0: this current administration and and, and these charges in a minute yeah. but but at the state level where the where the state um, district attorneys um, and the police have to work so cooperatively um, to bring their cases um, it it is very difficult for state um, district attorneys to then turn on um you know, the fellow law enforcement, um, officers, if you will. Um, and so there is, there is that. And so I think one of the things that could, um, change is who brings these charges. That is if the DA, if you will, has a conflict of interest because of the nature of the working relationship with the police officers, then maybe there should be an independent, um, they used to call these like police, um, civilian review boards right. which reviewed conduct, but there maybe should be um, offices like the office of special counsel in the justice department that brings cases that the office itself really can't easily bring because of, of conflicts or appearances of conflict. So maybe one of the better things to um, allow for these prosecutions is to have an independent prosecution authority um, established by the governors of each state that when there are charges against police officers um, for um, brutality or other um, bad behavior, it goes straight to this office that doesn't have that um, type of uh, district attorney, state police officer, um, uh, day-to-day working relationship so that may be one of the one of the ways and that way you get you may get more cases being brought and more cases that are successful will then impact the mindset of the police officer because again if there's no accountability and you don't want to change your behavior because you're a bad apple then why bother if there's accountability then then it's different
1: how does that differ from like you know, the police, the internal affairs department, they, you know, they call them the rat squad who go out and rat out cops. How does an independent prosecutorial uh, uh, branch differ from an internal affairs?
0: Internal affairs is, is more of a, an administrative um, uh, arm of the, of the police office where they're looking at behavior of police officers to bring administrative charges, get them fired and perhaps refer them to the prosecutors for prosecution. So it's an internal investigations unit uh, within the police office, um, which those guys are, are, you know, on TV shows. Of course, always disliked because right. they're turning on. You know, they used to call it the the, the the like the blue cone of silence. Yeah, they're turning against it. Um, but still, those cases brought, you know, forward by internal affairs are still going to the same prosecutors and the same prosecutors still have the same conflicts. And so it doesn't really resolve the question that you started this segment with, which is, um, what can you do from a prosecutorial standpoint to improve the system? And that probably would be to bring the prosecutors of these cases out of the day-to-day offices, um, so that they don't have this uh, so conflict. just an independent prosecutor. Yeah. But can, can we go backwards to one thing, which sure. was, which is sort of ironic and interesting, um, about this case. So I, I, I've mentioned once or twice the, 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 um, Rodney, um, Rodney's case where, Rodney um, King. where he was, um, um, beaten by the, by the police, um, Rodney King was beaten for resisting arrest um, in Los Angeles. Also caused riots, if you remember yeah. correctly. Yes, I, I covered those. <laughs> right. Precious little came of it. But so Rodney King is, is uh, uh, um, beaten by police officers um, for resisting arrest. It's videotaped. Um, and, and, and the officers um, are, are acquitted. And um, the Department of Justice um, launches its own investigation because they have, they have the power to um, bring federal charges if they find that the police willfully and intentionally used unreasonable force or willfully permitted or failed to take action to stop it. It's a violation of um, the individual's uh, civil rights, they have a right to be secure um, f- uh, and free from intentional use of excessive force. It doesn't require uh, the proof of racial motivation. It just has to prove that the police willfully deprived an individual of their civil rights. And so in the um, case of Rodney King, they brought these federal charges. And, and as I said, um, two of the officers were, tra- were convicted of those federal charges. The irony of it is that that was brought under um, George W. Bush, George Herbert Walker Bush's presidency, and Bill Barr was the attorney general then who authorized the federal prosecution of Rodney King's police officers.
1: That says a lot.
0: (laughs) And so it may well be that, you know, there are a lot of people, there are a lot of reasons to um, criticize Attorney General Barr from the Mueller summaries to the gassing in, 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 in Lafayette um, Park.
1: Which there are a lot I of things. I want to that, talk about that.
0: It, <laughs> yeah, he's criticizable for, with good reason, standing in front of the church with the president for that photo op I and mean, lots of things. But ironically, um, Barr may be dogged in his desire to see justice done in this case um, and may again, as he did in Rodney King, authorize the the bringing of federal charges. The the Civil Rights Division of Justice has been reported to be investigating whether or not federal civil charges, federal criminal civil rights charges
1: should be brought. Well, let's talk a little bit about uh, Barr. I'll I'll change gears on that one and go back to Monday and the gassing of uh, protesters outside of Lafayette Park. Um, I was there. There was in the days before there had been some um contentious behavior between protesters and police. they had thrown bricks and bottles at them, and the police had had maintained a very uh, stoic um front and when I talk with police, they go, look that's the first thing is do no harm almost like you know a physician, do no harm. We are not gonna uh force this situation to get any more riotous, but on Monday. There was nothing. It was peaceful protests, and they came out with... Now, they say it was pepper spray. I I was there. It smelled like gas to me, but what do I know? And they were gassing uh, people, clubbing them, and putting them out of the way. Doesn't that that trample all over the First Amendment? It tramples all, all over all
0: sense of decency. I mean... It was, there was a curfew that was going into effect at seven o'clock. And this, this happened at was,
1: 635,
0: 25 minutes this, before. Right. This was, and, and so one, people had a right to be um, on the street. There was no curfew violation. Two, there's a whole host of uh, First Amendment cases, which they talk about the location of the protest, that there are certain places like, on the Supreme Court steps, or in front of the Capitol or the White House, which are uniquely situated to bring protest against, you know, uh, uh, perceptions of government um, abuse. Misconduct. Right. So this is, you know, it's. I can hold a First Amendment protest in my backyard, but that's not the same thing as having a First Amendment protest on the steps of the Capitol. And the courts have recognized that. And so these people were in that place where um, historically protesters show up in order to let the White House know uh, their disagreement with its policies from Vietnam War forward um, in my lifetime. And, and before that, you know, um, it's the it's the place to go. And so for them to move these um protesters out in the manner in which they moved them out um, it was unacceptable, full stop. When you layer on top of it, that it seems that the reason they were moved out was so that the president could walk across the street for a photo opportunity in front of the, a church It it compounds the problem because when you think about it, if there's a curfew violation, curfew goes into effect at seven o'clock and and the police break up people saying, you know, curfew goes into effect. And Metropolitan police, you know, start disbanding, um, dispersing, and um, the streets are cleared by virtue of the the curfew. The president can, daylight doesn't, you know. You don't lose your daylight until like eight forty-five, nine o'clock these these days. He could have waited till seven thirty to cross the street, but he, I think, started walking out of the White House just at seven on the on the on the nose. Well, so I'll go you one like... better
1: than that. He when he made his speech from the Rose Garden to say that he would use the full force of the federal uh, government and military to enforce the peace, you heard in the background. The cannon being fired, and that was where I was at that time, across the street. And they were gassing that they. He, I think it was all he wanted. You wanted to hear that dramatic sound behind him as he was making the speech. I think it was a planned, made-for-TV moment that to make the president look strong.
0: And and if it was, it's and he's been
1: sued. You know, the
0: ACLU, I think, um, and maybe the NAACP Legal Defense Fund. I think there are lawsuits pending um based on it and yeah. and it'll be easy to see how those proceed but i mean it it's shameful uh, you know uh, the bedrock of our democracy is is, is the is um, free press and and first amendment broadly speaking um rights to redress grievances and to to orchestrate a made for television moment that that Undermines those fundamental constitutional principles is is, is, is shameful. Well, I mean, you what... you of all people, um, the troublemaker that you are, um, know from personal um, experience about the president. Maybe maybe I should stop talking as the guest and say, So Brian, let me let me let me switch seats with you. Okay, and have you be the guest on. Um, well, just ask me the question. <laughs> well, uh, well uh, if I'm the host, it's ask just some questions. <laughs> but but on, on, on on my guest hosting for you, on just as a, <laughs> ask the question. Can you can you talk a little bit about what happened today um, ah. uh, as it relates to the First Amendment and, and, and your being a member of the White House press
1: corps? well, brother. I sued him. I won. He appealed, and I won the appeal. Um, All right, well, back, back up the audience a little bit. What,
0: what what led to the what led to your lawsuit, and and uh, and how did it finally get resolved today?
1: The wonderful. Uh, there was a press event in the Rose Garden, where I uh, had tried to ask him a question. I asked him to stick around for a question, and he left. Uh, he wouldn't even answer questions. And then someone. It was the uh, social media people. And one got up and said, he already talked to Real Press. He did not have to talk to you. And I said, oh, this is a tough crowd. Looks like somebody's eager for uh, a demonic possession. And it got a laugh. At, but there was a guy across the, the um, Rose Garden who heard it, who took exception to it and came after me and started chasing me. And I told him that, you know, I, I said, look, we can talk here. We can go outside and talk for a real long time. Doesn't really matter to me. So he thought I was he, he wanted to feel like he was being threatened. And then um, I said, look, I said, talk. And so afterwards, I offered to shake his hand. I said, look, if you really think I was offering you... He goes, no, I'm not going to shake your hand. You're done. You're done. And 30 days passed. And uh, finally, I got a... I was uh, going for happy hour. I want to be happy for an hour. I went to happy hour with a, my wife and a couple of friends and got noticed that I was uh, losing my press pass for being rude and not following procedure. And they don't really have any procedure. So... I uh, I immediately sued to get my press pass back. Um, it was heard within a week, I think, and uh, they proved that, you know, that the judge looked at it and said, look, this is a First Amendment case. You can say whatever you want, you know. Uh, the, the, <laughs> the president has supposed in the appeal, so after I won and got my temporary injunction, they appealed and said one of the reasons they wanted to protect was that they wanted to keep me if, if <laughs> from... Mooning the president. And they want to be able to protect against mooning the president. And the court said, look, you've already got places and you you got laws in in place that'll take care of you there. But they, uh, it says, raising the, finally, raising the specter of the absurd. The White House argues it cannot be the case that the press secretary would be powerless to take action even if a reporter were to moon the president. And I don't know. I've been coming and going out of the White House for 35 years. I ain't never seen anybody moon the president. So, right, but the,
0: the, the
1: fundamental point here, what why um, it,
0: it's so important, is that you were doing your job as a, as a as member a of the White House Press Corps. You endeavored to ask a, a question. You were treated um, – I thought you were mistreated, just like Jim Acosta of CNN yeah. was, was mistreated, and he got his um, credentials – Yanked. yes so the precedent that they were starting to set is that if we don't like you we can essentially really? deny you of your, your your right to report on us and 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 the law says if you're gonna endeavor to take away press credentials you better have a, a, a rational basis for it that's founded on due process consistent with First Amendment rights and you said, Show me, show me the due process that I was entitled to. Show me the regulations that govern
1: behavior, and we can discuss it in court. But what happened? They had no process, that? and they had no, and, and they just merely uh, decided that the press secretary can be the arbiter and the judge and the jury and the executioner on whether or not uh, we've done right or done wrong. Which, if you allow that to happen, gives the uh, Press office and the president the right to get rid of any reporter that disagrees or asks a question they do not like, and so right. that's, and so the court and so the court says today that is a fundamental
0: violation of your due process rights.
1: Right. So their next uh, move could be to drop it or to continue on with it. Hopefully, they won't you know if they continue on with it, uh, I would suppose they could take it to the Supreme Court eventually. Um, looking for a, a a ruling in their favor, but all the rulings so far have unanimously gone against them. So I don't know why they would continue. Although I don't know why they continued this in the first place. Uh, they well. Con- it's, it seems it seems um, petty and vindictive. Yes, from my point of view, I I agree. I I believe it is petty and vindictive, but more more troubling to me, honestly, is that um, at the end of the day, it shows that there is a president of the United States who fundamentally does not understand what First Amendment rights are, or does and is systematically trying to abuse them to the point that they no longer exist. And I would almost fall down on, on that because he has used the coronavirus to limit his access to maybe 10 or 12 reporters at most. Uh, he stacks the deck for people who favor him. And by limiting his interaction, he also limits the number of questions. The press secretary is now holding briefings once a week, uh, which is a good thing, but it's before 12 or 14 reporters. And so she can look very good in handling those reporters, especially if those are some of them are invited there and she knows she can count on them for easy questions. It's quite a different thing to face the full force of the U.S. press, when you've got 100 to 150 people, we're following up on each other, we're following one another's questions, we're listening to the issues, and we stay attuned to what's going on. Quite a different thing. So the president has, I think, used a variety of methods to destroy the free press. And he's used the coronavirus uh, and the CDC guidance guidelines for us to do it. He's used the courts to do it. He's thrown people out. He threw Steve Herman out of a... uh, uh, of uh, off the plane off of Air Force One, a reporter threw him off the plane because they showed a picture of him not wearing a mask so I mean it, it's continuous and it's on multiple fronts and this is just one of them where we have to push back
0: yeah and, and I think you're correct to point out that the coronavirus has been used abused as a basis for change that I think is dangerous Absolutely. we can debate whether we can debate i suppose whether or not eliminating environmental rules on the basis of the coronavirus need to re- restore the economy is is good or bad maybe there's a viable debate to be had i don't, I don't think so but arguably it, it is but happen. we use the coronavirus to uh, so the scare to get rid of inspectors general In all of the agencies, Health and Human Services and and Interior and others who are investigating misconduct, um, and you you essentially purge the administration of those watchdogs, then I think we're in a much more dangerous to the democracy position than we ever have been.
1: And on that cheery note, we'll take another break and we'll be right back. Three, two.
0: One. Is that okay
1: that I asked you questions? I yeah, thought that was I fine. To... You... <laughs> that was perfect. Yeah, worked fine. <laughs> so coming back in three, two, one. Uh, and we're back with Michael Zeldin. And, uh, you know, we can't get together without talking what we really love to talk about, rock and roll. So uh, I missed your, your post. What was your, what was the one, you, you had your top ten albums. And then you said there was one that you posted that you thought I would react to, and I didn't see it. Right. So somewhere,
0: somewhere along the line, um, along on 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 Facebook, they you know how they have these periodic challenges, ice right. drop ice on your head and, and 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 other things, and in 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 someone challenged me. Um, to this it's not a challenge it's not like a, a feat of strength or anything <laughs> but to post uh, essentially 10 albums that were meaningful to me. So I had to do a posting of one album a day for for 10 days and I and, and I said that I would do it in sort of the order that music came in t- into into my life not necessarily, that this was the best album by this band that I liked, but rather this is how my music education developed. And so the first one I posted was Meet the Beatles. That's a good one. And then the second one was Rolling Stone's 12 by 5 which was their That's second one. album. Third album was uh, Bob Dylan's Highway 61 ah. Revisit. <laughs> but I think his third album. Fourth album for me was Pet Sounds by the Beach Boys. Number five was Simon and Garfunkel's Rose, Parsley Sage, Rosemary, and Time. Six was Traffic, Mr. Fantasy, That's which introduced that whole group of musicians Jimi Hendrix, Cream, um, Traffic, then on to Blind Faith. Um, James Taylor's first album, the band's music from Big Pink. Joni Mitchell's Lady of the Canyon, and Working Man's Dead. So those are the 10 albums that I posted. And then I posted a uh, follow-up to it saying, here are, my, here are my honorable mentions. And I have another. And, and the one thing that's noticeable about my list, Ryan, is that I have 20-something albums, and none of them go beyond 1970.
1: <laughs> well, I have a few that would go past that. Um... Yeah. Well, I, 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 I,
0: so I decided to stick to that decade. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. You get to 71 you get stevie wonder and, and 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 74 75 you get bruce springsteen and the eagles i mean a lot of a lot of fans but but that was my list so i so what i was saying to you on the break was as i was posting these one by one because we've gone back and forth with quoting each other lines from highway 61 yeah. revisited um uh, songs that i was I, ex- I was expecting you to say what you're picking that album? what about you know
1: yeah <laughs> Well, I, I, yeah, Highway 61, I, I don't know why, but that is still one of my favorite songs and one of my favorite Dylan albums. But, um, yeah. yeah, second best now. Yeah, I, well, that, and there's another one that I was thinking of the other day that also reminds me of uh, the Trump administration, and that's Simon and Garfunkel's The Boxer. Uh, you know, I just, half the time I see him as the guy just standing there, swinging away. He's getting his butt beat, and he's still swinging away. He's the boxer, yeah. and a fighter by yeah. his trade. And he carries a reminder in every every glove that's laid him down or cut him till he's cried out in his anger and his shame. I am leaving. I am leaving. But the fighter still remains.
0: <laughs> right, but and how does the song start? the The opening line is a, um, a man hears what he wants to hear We're and in dis- disregards the, the rest.
1: rest. That's another thing that reminds me of
0: Trump. <laughs> and that's that's how the boxer opens, and I think that we have maybe a, an opportunity to close out this wonderful conversation to say that the problem the problem these days is people hear what they want to hear and disregard the rest and 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 that's killing us
1: it is and the inability i you know i i was watching at the in the protests and there was a there was a young kid who was screaming and ranting and raving and i said uh, well you know him and his girlfriend were standing there and they said, well, I kind of chuckled because it's not my first rodeo. And, you know, I've been to a lot of protests and, and a few riots and wars. And so they were so well, you think this is funny? And I said, well, I, no, I think it's, you know, uh, fine to be here expressing your First Amendment rights. And anybody who uh, has the ability to express their First Amendment rights should be happy to do so. So they go, this, this guy thinks this is funny. And it just came to me at that point in time that there are people on both sides of the fence who have no clue as to what the arguments are, how to frame them, or why they're important.
0: Yeah. yeah,
1: Yeah. And I don't think the president's helped any. But that's just me.
0: (laughs) Well, a lot of people have posted on the Internet, and if your listening audience hasn't had a chance to to take a look at it, is to listen to Robert Kennedy's words. I posted that upon upon the death of, um, of the Martin, murder of Martin, Martin Luther King. King Jr. Yeah.
1: Um,
0: that, that's what these times required and, and we have pretty much the diametric opposite of it.
1: Yeah. And, and on that sober thought, we'll talk some more <laughs> next time, Michael. It's always a pleasure to have you.
0: Great to be back.
1: Yeah. Talk to you soon.
0: Talk to you soon. Uh-huh.
1: And this is Just Ask the Question. I am your host, Brian Caram and thanks for joining us. We'll catch you next time.